Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You can follow us on Twitter or send us an email to afternoon at newstalk.com. Yes, it is uh, indeed uh, time for parenting. Uh, once again, with Joanna Fortune. Uh, as usual, if you'd like to send in a question for Joanna, you can send it into afternoon at newstalk.com. Joanna, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sean. Right, here's the first question. My six-year-old told me that she had learned the N-word and that it was a bad word. She said her friend told her about it. I confirmed that, yes, this is one of the most awful words and you should never use it about anybody or for any reason. However, I was not really sure if I should expand on this. I did not, nor did she, actually say the word. It felt wrong for me to say it. I am not even sure if she knows what it is. She only knows one black child, but not from school. So I didn't want to talk specifics about that person. Uh, Should I have? Just not really sure how to navigate in an age-appropriate way. We don't live in an urban area, so there are not that many people who are not white in the area. So it's even more important to get this right from the start. Yes, it is. And it's a difficult conversation because, do you know what, there is no perfect template for it. But ideally, as with so many things when it comes to parenting, and I don't mean to say this and go, well, that you know, you've missed the boat. But ideally, we started as early as possible. This is still a six-year-old child. But, you know, even earlier than that, Sean, where it is. And then you keep it going. Once you start a conversation, it's not like, well, I can check that off the parenting list and it's done. We keep the conversation going. I mean, we have to hold in mind that before one year old, babies can recognize color difference. And by five years old, many can show and do show a racial bias. Now, I'm not saying that's what this little little one is showing or her little pal. Clearly, they heard a word and something in at least your child, but I would imagine both of them knows that word is not okay because it's the N word. She didn't even use the word. It doesn't mean she knows why it's not okay, but something in her recognizes this isn't okay. Mm. So you did the right thing by saying this is not a good word. It's an awful word. It might be useful to say it's not kind. It's not a kind word and it would hurt somebody's feelings to hear that word. So it's not a word we'll ever use. I think when it comes to, especially with young children, opening up a dialogue, a conversation like this, it helps to ensure that you have inclusive and diverse toys, dolls, books already at home. And if you don't, you can acquire some of these, you know, gradually bit by bit and just integrate them into the toys at home without any fanfare or big announcement. But that you, if you want to embrace diversity, it should be part and parcel of how children play because That is their language. That is how they make sense of the world that they live in and all of the experiences they have in that world. And you can also speak about when and you will be speaking about bodies, of course, outside of this conversation. That's another beautiful, difficult conversation (laughs) that will rear its head if it hasn't already. But when you do, make sure that you have books that are inclusive and include images of bodies of all colors, shapes, sizes, you know, abilities so that it's very much about bodies all look different on the outside. But you know what? We're all the same on the inside. And that's the message you're gently, firmly, 
consistently delivering. I do think it, uh, especially at this age, books are a great way to mm. introduce difficult things. And, you know, just holding in mind that Ema O'Neill, um, you know, she has a ah, new book out for children. The same, but different. I was just about to exactly. say that myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's lovely and it's so nicely done and really appropriate for this age group as well. But do you know another one, Sean, is, and it's available from <clears throat> that website, geniusjuniors.ie. And I, I mentioned them because it's run by Doc doctors who and all the proceeds go towards children's hospitals in Ireland so it's a nice way to buy books but they have a great stash of the Osborne books and I mean it's hard to go wrong with one of that that publishing house books but there's one called What is Racism um, by Katie Danes D-A-Y-N-E-S I can't remember the co-author of it actually Jordan no I, I, I can't remember the second name but that would be enough to find it and I know it's on geniusjuniors.ie and that would be adult you're getting a good book for a good cause by doing that but books like that are a great way of opening up conversation and normalizing you know normalizing diversity so it's not like okay let's have that old diversity conversation let's talk about inclusivity it simply becomes part of the conversation but children discover so much about their world through books and play so I would start you know, do a little audit of the the toys, the props, the play, the activity, the books that you have and see where could I do better? Because do you know what? There are resources out there. Sometimes you have to look a little hard for them. It is thankfully and appropriately becoming easier to acquire such resources. But I, I think that's a great start with this. I think it's okay to say to her, oh my goodness, that word is such a big word and it's not a kind one. And I'm really glad that you know that because you didn't use the word with me. That tells me you know it was wrong. And then move beyond the word to embracing the conversation about inclusivity. And I think that's the best approach with this. And it's a good, if while there's no perfect template for the conversation, this kind of approach is a good template for the myriad of difficult, uncomfortable conversations that are going to come home from someone in school told me, mm. I heard in school that, and you're immediately going to be going, okay, give me that. Let's break it down, demystify it, clarify and give it back to you. This is the first of many, many of those, no better than six, seven, eight-year-olds to send you home with challenging topics to talk about. It's great if we can preempt, anticipate and get ahead of those. So, you know, it's not, she's not too young for the conversation. I would say as young as possible to start this. Yeah. And it is, it is interesting about the Emer O'Neill book. And as I understand it, like she's, the book's about her. She's writing about her yeah, own experience. Her growing own up on experiences, uh, uh, yeah. But reading it in our house, that like the first few times that my daughter was like, oh, I didn't, I had noticed this before. Yeah, my skin is that color. And I thought for a moment, yeah. my God, this is backfiring horribly. She's turning into yeah. a white supremacist. Yeah. <laughs> but so it took her a few reads to kind of then think, oh God, this is what this is about. And then she started imagining what mean things they were saying uh, yeah. uh, to the little girl, to Emer's character. And uh, she really was rocking around in the inside of her head, really, what this was about. And it's extraordinary to watch that that process yeah, happened within them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my own little one, who's a little younger than this, again, asked me about in a very, you know, but why do different skins have different colours? And, and not, I don't want some big kind of everybody's the same. She's like, I know, mm. but why do skins have different colours? So sometimes our children, because they're curious, they just want to know. Yeah. And it's, it's a direct answer of, well, there's a, a thing called melanin in skin and some people have lots of it and some people don't. And that decides what colour your skin is. And she's like, Great. Makes total sense. Move on. Yeah.
Now, next question. Uh, this is a sad one. Uh, it, uh, this person says, it is agreed that I'm to see my children basically half of all the time my children are off school. But in this is a separated per, uh, parent, obviously. But over the last 10 years, uh, the children's other parent has put every conceivable obstacle in the way of this and prevents our children having any sort of a normal relationship with me. Our children resist engaging with me while their other parent is present. But when they get to spend time with me alone... They often say they would like to see me more, but they know that the other parent doesn't want this and that the other parent hates me. The children are often forced to carry messages to me, some very unpleasant. I try not to engage with this turmoil. I always tell my children that I love them and that nothing will ever change that. I always try to acknowledge any questions that they may have and and empathise with their feelings. In the past 10 years... I have never failed to turn up to see my children when allowed, but despite this, I've only seen them a small fraction of the time allocated, despite attempted discussions with the other parent, mediation, and unfortunately years of professional involvement in court orders, none of which have really improved the situation for my children. There have been many and some large gaps when I didn't see or speak with my kids, some as long as 12 months at a time. I've tried uh, inventive ways to contact them, all of which are rejected by the other the parent. Please advise what I can do for my children when I do have opportunities to see or to speak with them. I would like them to have a bright future, but I fear they are sad with the situation they are in and I worry about how they will navigate life with this as their starting point. Oh my goodness, it's so sad yeah. in so many ways. And while the children aren't, their ages aren't given here, I'm gathering, well, it's been at least 10 years, mm-hmm. but they must be still in that kind of pre-teen or just coming into teen stage because you're still contacting them through their other parent rather than on their own devices or directly communicating. Now, that again, Sean, I don't know, could be by court order itself. And I think there's something in here for me, and I say this with empathy and curiosity, really, that in 10 years, the level of active rage and anger between or either one party to the other or between you, it just seems really alive and active, even though a long, long time has passed. And I appreciate that, you know, you're talking about processes here like mediation and court and all kinds. And we know none of those are quick. So it maybe has served that this has just kept bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And there really hasn't been an opportunity for either parent to process and to take time to I suppose, grieve and work through the end of the relationship, whatever went on there. It just seems that emotions are still running very, very high 10 years later. So that's something I I just want to name. This isn't just about the children, because children will do the best that they can with the parents and family situation and environment that they're in. And as they get older, they make different kinds of meaning and understanding of what's going on. And it is extremely hard for children to feel in the middle of such active acrimony. That's the only thing I can say about that extreme. For children to say, I know my other parent hates you is a very sad statement and not something children should be privy to, regardless of who did what, when, to whom and what went on. Children need to be protected from that. And the idea that children are, and the word is forced to carry unpleasant messages, That's just not okay. And uh, it doesn't matter where the hurt is or what's happened. That simply isn't accessible. If you, if one of you has um, an unpleasant message to convey to the other, that's why there are solicitors. 
Use a legal representative or mechanism to affect that message. Do not use young children to do that because it puts them in an just an unimaginable compromise position because immediately they're having to split loyalties. They love both parents. They know they are loved by both parents, but they know there is no love or even respect between those parents. So as best you can, and I know that you've been through the court rigmarole and everything, and the last thing you want to do is go back there, but you have done everything right in terms of attempting mediation and court and solicitors and all of those bits. And if there are orders in place, then those orders do need to be adhered to and upheld. And you have a right to recall the situation to mediation or court again, either if you have the inclination, the means, the, the headspace to do that. But just hold it in mind that just because you've done it doesn't mean some people do need to go back and do that again. Now, I, I think beyond that, and I'm so sorry that this is going on both for this parent and the children, um, that it's been such a struggle. You are doing the right thing in also ensuring that when your children are with you, you're really with them. Now, children don't miss that. They notice that. And while they're reconciling a version of you through the other parent or whatever else is going on, they're also coming to an age when they're going to weigh that up with what they know of you, what they think, what they feel. And that critical analysis and critical view, those skills are really refining. So I, I see I don't want to make it sound dismissive of hang in there. And, you know, when communication can be, if it can be more direct with with you, that might be an easier thing. But while they while all of that's happening. OK, and as children get older, as you know yourself, Sean, when you've got teenagers that they begin to assert more and more, mm. you know, where I'm going to go, when, with who and what and how. And that will also affect these arrangements. Um, it can go both ways, by the way. A teenager can go, I'm too busy with my friends to see you. Um, but it can also be, no, look, at I just want to see my other parent and spend time with them. I'm going to stay the night. They can make more, you know, overt declarations themselves. But while you're waiting for all of this to happen, make sure that you know their schedules, you know, their school schedules, their social schedules, their extracurricular stuff. I mean, if you have you know, dual guardianship and you have an automatic right to that information, uh, make sure the school knows that they should and can communicate directly with you. And again, that's dependent on the arrangement in place. But if that's possible, knowing their schedule, because then you're able to send very specific messages or when you do see them to say, hey, how did that thing go or this go or the other thing go? And they know that you are holding them in mind, even when you're not together, and that you are interested in them because it tells them that they are interesting and their lives are interesting to you. So make sure you express that overt interest and very specific interest in events, not general, how's that going? Oh, you stopped doing it three months ago. I didn't realize as best you can. You might. And again, I'm kind of I'm not sure the, the age, but if they're kind of between 10 and maybe 11 or 12 or something like that. You could also have a little rhyme or a little kind of a little saying, a phrase that you always use when you talk together. It's your little way of greeting each other, saying goodbye, you know, develop a, um, a four part handshake. I've spoken about before where you you add in two parts. So do they. And you build a handshake between you. And it's again a way of going. You remember me. 
so that every time we are together, we have this special way of connecting verbally as well as physically when you're physically together. And then collect little bits that you know they'd be interested in. It could be comic books. Um, it could be paint materials. It could be little gadgets, gizmos, books. It could be anything random stuff that kids are interested in and so when you do see them you have these hey I saw this thought of you and I held it for you knowing that we could enjoy it together when we got together I don't I know that sounds like it's small things but these things matter because everything in there tells your child that they matter to you and you want to matter to them and all you can do is be consistent reliable and available and be open and if and when you are receiving uncomfortable or inappropriate messages through your children it is okay to say i'm going to stop you because i don't think it's fair that you have to say those words to me and that's between your other parent and I, and I'll we we can get somebody else to get me that message. Yeah, it, so it, it just you control the boundary. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, it just strikes me that that other parent is actually not, apart from not doing their kids any favors, no. they're not doing themselves any favors because sooner or later, as you say, when they're teenagers, they'll go saw this. I'm not going to do yes. this anymore, and they'll go where they want. And resentment will emerge. Yeah. And it's really and, and just because one parent has had the the primary role and the greatest overt influence, it doesn't mean the children have absorbed that as a truth. OK, so you holding your position, calm, clear, consistent, reliable will stand to you. I, I just it's just terribly unfortunate. But, you know, Sean, like while we can say what the ideal way to negotiate a separation in the mm. interests of children is like human emotion comes into this and there's often you know multiple layers on both sides of hurt and betrayal and rage and disappointment and everything that goes with that and that can be very very hard to get over get past or negotiate and ideally both parents would have a therapeutic space and process for themselves to work that out because mediation is still often you're focused on the rage and trying to get through it. But what about a space that is about you releasing that and grieving all of that so that you don't have to take it out on each other through the children? Yeah. Uh, somebody's texting in to say, for those parents who are struggling with the separation, please take Joanna's advice on board. My parents separated 30 years ago and as the eldest, I was caught up in between them. They hated and still hate each other. It has destroyed any self-confidence and as a result I don't stand up for myself. It has tainted my relationship with my mother in particular as I hold so much resentment for the position she put me into. Yeah, I oh God. And 30 years later, that wound is still Gosh. there. Yeah, It's really sad. Like these things do have a legacy. So the important thing is, is that you don't continue to feed into that problem, but you be a different type of presence and a different type of influence. Right, we do have to take a, a commercial break. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. Uh, coming up after that, twins with issues. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. Join a fortune it's still with us for parenting. Next question is this. I have three-year-old twin daughters. One of my daughters has had an initial assessment for a sensory processing disorder and I'm waiting on an OT and psychologist appointment for her. The eldest now... I know they're twins, but I, oftentimes parents often refer to the, the eldest and the youngest, even though it's usually just a matter of minutes. Uh, the eldest seems to have a sensory seeking issue. For over two years, she seeks deep pressure on her lower stomach. And for several months, she was picking at my skin. But in the past six months, she's abandoned that. 
and started to pick at the skin on her lips to the point that they bleed. Her lips look so sore. She started preschool at the start of September and this may be associated with that change. My younger daughter, Will, when upset or tired, demands soothers, sucking one, one to smell and when in bed, one or more by her feet. She falls asleep quickly once she has them and I don't know whether to be concerned about trying to wean her off. We've tried and failed. She gets so upset. I'm very aware of the advice Joanna regularly gives about sensory play and we do uh, that with them. I've also started taking them swimming and trying to increase interest together and individually. I've started using lip balms to see if that helps with the lip picking but so far it hasn't. Is there any particular advice Joanna has to ease the lip picking? As for the soothers, perhaps we should wait until closer to four to try and wean. But I'm conscious the soothers are changing the alignment of her teeth. Selfishly, the ease of her going to sleep is a joy. Oh, my goodness. There's so <clears throat> much there. going on. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? This is a really attuned parent. Like you're very aware of your your little one's individual needs. You're very aware of what they need to be assessed for. And you're in that process. And it's really hard when you're in a process or just beginning it and it's going to take time. But you already see the active symptom or challenge at home. And you're like, but what can I do? And largely, I'm going to tell you that, you know, you have to go through that assessment process and see what emerges from it because that will decide the most appropriate behavioral, sensorial treatment response for for the girls. Now, what I'm gathering from this is that one of them is in the process of being assessed. You know, you're waiting for an OT, the one who's showing sensory processing challenges, but the other one who's showing sensory seeking um, style of behaviors that you don't mention her being assessed. And I wonder, could she be? Now, they're both three years old, If you haven't had your three-year-old developmental check, I've mentioned this before in most areas, what with the pandemic and, you know, everybody being behind, they may not happen or you might not be called automatically unless you proactively ring your public health nurse and say, I have concerns. I'd like that check done with either your public health nurse or area medical officer, depending on how it is in your area. But it would be no harm to have both of the girls looked at because occupational therapy as an intervention, the OT you mentioned, it sounds like it would be useful for both. And it can be challenging when you're trying to do sensory play with one child who has sensory processing issues and another who's sensory seeking because it's a little bit and I'm only using this as one brief and broad example like you might have one child who craves those big tight squeezy hugs in a sensory seeking way and another who finds that overwhelming and even painful in their body response and so you've got a seeker and maybe an avoider or one who gets overwhelmed and to try and you know strike that balance with the sensory play is a challenge so allow yourself get it right get it wrong and try again with all of that because that's where you're at with this at the moment. You're in a process you have to let happen. Now, when it comes to the dody stuff, especially with your little one who you know is being assessed, I'm going to tell you to pick your battles and the assessment comes first mm-hmm. and don't take her dody away while she's already having an active struggle and it's the thing that's helping her. It's giving her comfort and it's helping her to regulate and ultimately get to sleep. I'm not saying you won't need to look at getting rid of it, but there might be a nice specific way that your OT can do that helps children who have sensory processing issues approach it in a different way. So my my general advice is, do you know what, wait for now, don't create another problem for yourself there. And with your little lip picker, 
it's quite hard to say. Mm -hmm, it is. But, um, but with her, you know, because you're doing the right thing with lip balms, but with little ones, you have to make lip balms really exciting and interesting because otherwise it's like another thing that you're going to hold me down, like brushing my teeth to do and I don't really want to. So try her out and say it's lipstick, you know, get one of the, the little sticks, like a labello stick, but a pink one or it has a shimmer in it or something kind of interesting and exciting. And they go, ooh, I'm putting on my makeup. I'm putting on my lipstick. Um, you could also get, you know, one of those ones that they're a twisty top and they're like a ball because you know she can rub it around herself and let her play with it let her rub it around herself so that it isn't something of an intervention but it's something pleasurable and that she will seek that out and that sensation on her lips the other thing I wondered about is maybe an ice cube to suck on now I'm not suggesting before anyone gives out to me giving a three-year-old an ice cube and they'll choke on it I mean getting one of those um I don't know the proper name for them, but, you know, they're like a net thing that you can put little bits of fruit in when your child is weaning mm. um, and they can suck the, the ice when they're teething or the fruit through the net. So they're not putting the lump of ice or food in their mouth. They're getting it through the net. I think that could be a useful way of doing it. Um, so I've given you a very bad description of what that is, but I think it, you've been through a weaning process. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's a good way to introduce uh, flavors and foods. So your pharmacy would likely have those. Try something like that, because I think that could be a, a, some, a new, exciting sensation on her lips. But the ice would also numb the area. So, you know, because it must be quite sensitive and tender, I'm thinking, if she's picking her lips. So I'd explore and play around with the lip balms. They're obviously the answer. And if not, wait till she's asleep and try and layer it on yourself while she's asleep. But give her something like the ice cube as well, um, because I think that could help. And, I, you know, I'm not going to give you anything too directive or, you know, specific on this at this point, because I'd really like you to go through the assessment process yeah. and see what specifically emerges. So because I imagine you'll get a very tailored treatment response. My teenage son is repeatedly coming home drunk. He's 16 and won't listen to any of us. I don't let him access alcohol at home and I do my best with him, but he's gotten very argumentative and confrontational, especially over the last year. He often heads out without telling us where he's going, returns hours later very drunk and can barely walk or stand. Sometimes he's so drunk that I need to help him up the stairs. I'm at a loss of what to do about it. Oh, it's so worrying, you mm. know. It's I'm not, you know, I'm not going to oh, should teenagers drink? You know, this isn't what this is. And, yeah. you know, being really aware that just because we know teenagers drink and we do, you know, there was a I remember a 2019 study in the Western Region Task Force, Drug Alcohol Task Force, I think it was. But they they, they interviewed and that was a hefty number. It was like 89 or 90 secondary schools and over 4000 young people, but 15 to 16 years old. And it showed 77 percent of that age group drink alcohol. Um, a 2020 My World study done with UCD and the Jigsaw Youth Mental Health. Now, their study looked at 12 to 19 year olds, so broadening the age group. So it lowered the percentage because of the wider age range, but it was still 43% of that age group drinking alcohol. So we know that this is something teenagers do, but just because they do it, does it mean we should normalize it? Does it mean we should minimize or dismiss it? Because it's very high risk behavior for teenagers in lots of ways, psychologically, emotionally, their physical safety, their physiological well-being. You know, there's huge issues and we have to be concerned that binge drinking in adolescence is problematic across so many areas, home life, social life, school life. But also it can, not always, but it can raise a, an increased risk of developing alcohol 
alcohol problems in adulthood and later on. So I, I mean, be aware of what resources are there, because I think as a parent, you can feel really disempowered in this because he's 16. I'm, I'm aware that you describe him as argumentative and confrontational, um, increasing in the last year. Now, I do want to flag as an explanation, not an excuse, that the last year has been so incredibly difficult on this age group. And kids who were coping pretty well most of the time, mostly well most of the time before their whole world was upended with no end in sight, have developed negative coping, some of them negative coping mechanisms. Um, and again, I only say that as a way of explaining why the last year not excusing the behavior. Yeah. But I just think with argumentative and confrontational, just be sure that you're safe. Um, I, I would encourage you to reach out to um, via the, you know, the hse.ie have asked about alcohol as a resource. There's a specific piece there on adolescence, alcohol action, in Ireland have taken a stance on this drinkaware.ie there's lots of resources and information out there and as a parent get informed get your facts get all of that information and also go with the resources as to how to begin these conversations um you're in it but for anyone else thinking gosh you know this is something else you know going back to the, that list I did warn you at the start about difficult conversations you'll have to have is ideally we would start talking about the risks of alcohol use long before alcohol has entered the picture and again those research studies I mentioned Sean would tell us we should be having that conversation long before they hit their teenage years given 12 and 13 can be an entry point for some young people ask about your preteen or your teens views what do they think what do they already know what's their thoughts and opinions or feelings about it and then gently yet firmly reality check any myths debunk some of the stuff they think is true but give solid relatable reasons not to drink you know mm. how is it going to affect me talk about how it can affect your skin and your hair and it can cause all kinds of problems as well in other areas and brainstorm together peer pressure responses ahead of time imagine I'm putting pressure on you what might you say okay let's swap that over you put the pressure on me and I'll model a response and also heads up be prepared to answer questions about your own teen drinking you might want to you know, creatively modify some of that, but be honest as best you can about why you're aware about this, because we have to be aware of our own relationship to alcohol and our risk taking behavior or risk aversity with this young man, because it's ongoing, you need to talk to him and listen, not talk at him you know, keep this as a conversation. So talk and listen with him, but wait for a quiet moment of connectivity or when he's seeking you out looking for something because he's less likely to snap at you if he needs something from you. And that could be a window of opportunity to share your observations and concerns and be armed with that information you've looked up and tell him you need to take action on this. But it it may ideally if you've a co-parent or somebody else it might be a conversation to have together yeah and if this is teetering into something in the range that you think it's problematic to the point of addiction then i would encourage you to straight out reach out to your gp and seek referral to professional support services Joanna, thanks a million. As ever, Joanna Fortune there. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a, a break after that. Toilets in space. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.